For this, our 10th season, we will focus on telling true stories about the men and women we have come to know over 28 years of recovery. Each episode will tell the story of what life was like as an addicted or alcoholic person, what happened to wake that person up, and what is life like today. Not all stories are ones of success. Some of our friends didn't make it as they relapsed and so far have not come in from the cold. Some died in circumstances that had nothing to do with their disease. Others had a rough start, but they persevered and now enjoy a full and productive life. Some are old guys like me, and others are relative youngsters who serve as great examples to other younger addicts. Our stories describe addicts and alcoholics of many different cultures, a range of socioeconomic status, different generations, gender types, and sexual preferences, if they're relevant to their story. I like to say that addiction and alcoholism are equal opportunity predators. They don't discriminate. And you will see how the stories we share about our friends will prove the truth of that statement. Episode 9, Season 10. Uncle Francis tried to outrun it, but it caught him. Uncle Francis was my dad's brother, and they had quite a history between them. They were two of five brothers and five sisters. I think my dad, Bruno Sr., was the oldest of the brothers who included Francis, Stanley, George, and Casimir. I don't remember all my aunt's names, but there was Barbara, Jose, and Eleonora that I do remember. Often these paternal aunts were referred to by their husbands' names. For example, Eleonora was referred to as Casimirin, Casimirinia, Casimirinia. Uh, Casimir's wife, a Lithuanian tradition not unlike that of many Eastern European traditions. There were ten of this family of brothers and sisters that landed in Canada. One sister was left behind, so there was a total of eleven live children in the family. The ten children and both parents all fled before the advance of the Russian army, which was sweeping westward through northern Europe in pursuit of the German army in retreat. My dad was 33 years old at the time. Some sisters were older and some were younger, along with the other four brothers. They traveled on two wagons pulled by three horses. That way there was always one horse resting even while they were walking. They traveled over 600 kilometers, mostly at night, hiding by day. Most of the time, soldiers of both armies left them alone. My uncles feared for the safety of the women as there was always the possibility of rape at the point of a rifle. They bypassed villages at night, not knowing whether the people there were friend or foe or extortionist. They acquired good night vision that enabled them to spot some unused pasture or tiny stream running alongside a railroad track. They watched and listened as trains carrying German troops and guns rumbled by, heading west in retreat. The goal was to make it to the safety of one of the western occupation zones, the British zone in the north, the American zone in the central west, or the French sector in the south. The last thing they wanted was to get stuck in the Russian zone in the east. They had seen the Russian occupiers at work in their own country from 1939 until 1941, when Hitler retook the Baltic countries on his way to invading Russia on June 21, 1941. Lithuania had been a true western-leaning democracy from the time of the end of the First World War in 1918, until 1939 when Hitler got the second one going by invading Poland in September of that year. All of the boys in the party and the family were not well educated 
enjoyed their liquor and gambling and partying with any willing lady who came along. They were all sons of a peasant father and mother. But they did all make it to the British sector late in 1945 after the war was officially over in May. They were then assigned to a refugee camp with thousands of other so-called displaced personnel, or DPs as they were called. The camps were reasonably well run by the efficient Brits, so no one starved. The Brits allowed the men and some of the women to leave camp for the day to work or take care of important business such as visiting with the local consulate. My dad and his brothers took the opportunity to get into the black market, buying and selling stolen American cigarettes and whiskey. They even bought a harbor boat to try to start a shore haulage operation, all under some pretense or another. It was a wild west. Francis was the most adventurous and the best at the whiskey business. If there was stolen bourbon to be found, he would find it. Or he would steal it by the tens of cases. That's 250 bottles at a crack. The Brits left local security, such as policing, to Germans they trusted. The Germans, hungry and broke, took every opportunity to steal, trade, or bootleg whiskey and cigarettes as if they were handed solid gold for the taking. My uncle... Francis was right in the middle of it. He was always first into the fray, whatever it was. He loved his whiskey and his gambling. One time he gambled away my dad's Studebaker in a late-night card game, but my dad talked the other guy into not coming for the car because there would be five brothers waiting for him. A bright yellow Studebaker convertible, how my dad acquired it, I have no idea. My brother has an old photo of my dad leaning against the vehicle, Cigar in hand and wearing a double-breasted suit. They were all small-time gangsters, mostly harmless, never violent, as they had seen enough of violence to last a lifetime. This entire tribe emigrated to southern Ontario, mostly to work in the steel, automotive, or rubber factories along Lake Ontario near Hamilton, which happened to be the steel capital or the Pittsburgh of Canada. A few brothers, my dad among them, chose to try to buy small farms not far from their own brothers and sisters in Hamilton, Ontario. Stanley, George, and Bruno, my dad, became farmers. Francis ended up working at a huge Ford plant in Oakville, Ontario, where he worked dutifully until alcohol took his life at the age of 52. He was a most charming fellow, but when he drank, he became violent. He had a touch of mental illness, too, I think, or or was it the alcohol that had him hallucinating? Having conversations with a son he lost when the boy was just six. His wife, my Aunt Lena, divorced him when the divorce was unthinkable at the time, but she was a courageous woman, and no one in the family blamed her a bit. He left his mark, however, on his two remaining children, my cousins. One, a boy, seemed to have been traumatized by his father's violence and an inherited inclination to depression. He died at a young age. The other, a girl, was sufficiently affected to leave her with ADOA syndrome, adult children of alcoholics. Adult children typically carry a heavy burden of codependency into their early, into their lives from early until late. They get married and have children and become codependent and have their effect on them as well. Unless therapy and other processes are employed to alleviate the after-effects, codependency can last a lifetime. So there was Francis. He survived the nightmare of war and flight from a savage enemy. 
He talked himself into and out of trouble. He enjoyed his life until he began to hate his life for what his uncontrollable drinking had done to him. He would visit us on the farm and hang out with his favorite brother, who happened to be my dad. One day I just stumbled onto my dad and uncle laughing so hard they had tears in their eyes. I thought they were actually crying. I have little doubt that it was Uncle Francis, the provocateur, who started the laughing and the crying with one of his funny stories. If my dad was his favorite brother, Uncle Francis was my favorite uncle by far. <sighs> Yet he drowned when his car found, him, found itself in eight feet of water under an old bridge out there in the countryside. Of course, his blood alcohol content was over the top. By then, he was living by himself in a little walk-up in a small town near Hamilton to be near his family. It didn't seem so bad, or I do know in my heart that his own heart was broken beyond repair. For he was a man of great emotionality, and he wore his heart on his sleeve, just like his nephew. The very moment he could make you laugh yourself silly, he could make you cry too. The complex, loving, brave, colorful man struck down, destroyed by alcohol, never to return. So what have we learned from the story of my Uncle Francis? We learned perhaps more than we realized at first. We learned that, one, a man can survive almost anything and still be taken down by this disorder we call alcoholism. Two, the power of family is evident in this story. It turns out that Francis was welcome wherever he went unless he was drinking. Three, he was able to outwit and outrun the enemy except for the one inside of him. There was, however, no thought of treatment in those days. Four, his legacy is unfortunate. Despite fond memories of his charm, his children were victimized by his disease. Five, it's too easy to remember only the good times. We do a disservice to the memory of a much-loved man like Francis if we do not also recall with clarity what killed him in the end. Our podcast is sponsored by SafeHouseRehab.com, a modern approach to recovery. To learn more, visit us at SafeHouseRehab.com.